0: Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, The the guest today has a, a very Very warm personality, um, and as a part of the perennial sprint, I'm going to use her words. I just love that when we were chatting offline, Anurupa Ganguly. uh, She is the founder and CEO of Prisms of Reality. And I was saying prior to, I wanted to get your name correct. So hopefully, I I did that. You didn't jinx me there. Um, Before we went on air, okay. So you have a fascinating background, right? So Boston Public Schools. um, You know, physics and math teacher. I mean, that's a big school system, right? And and you said to yourself. There's an issue going on here. I'm not, I don't have the assets that I need. Um, And you did something about that. And I actually want to dive into that, that area there, because I think there are a lot of people in education that have the best of intentions. They're really good at observing and picking up sort of the clues that say, I wonder if we could do something better or maybe different and take a risk. But the percentages are very low in those that actually sort of step into that light. Can you take me into that? Because we can get into the particulars, but take me into the moment where you said to yourself, I think I want to I want to try my hand at this, or I want to dive into this. Let's go into the deep end. Tell me about that moment in time for you. Did you consult others? Like, what was it? How do you have that conversation with yourself where you don't come across as, not not that ego gets in the way, but I think you got to have a healthy sense of ego to be able to even do this or run a business. So tell me about that moment.
1: Yeah, I would I would just rephrase ego as just conviction and ultimately conviction is a function of your experiences that that got you to a point to believe that this is the only way. And so what I what I will do is just give you a really quick overview of what I feel like were the stepping stones for my conviction and why there's like no looking back from this point on. Um, I did have a slightly non-linear path to education as, as a teacher. I was My training is in engineering, so I've always been a kind of a builder by nature. And um, when I was in college, it, that's for the first time I saw such huge drop-offs of students as they go through their STEM career. And it primarily came from the fact that really, really creative and smart people were taught to reproduce and memorize and not not figure out how to create and contribute knowledge. They were just reproducing other people's knowledge that that had been discovered, so to speak. And so I always say, I always begin with my story in college because that was where it took root. Um, And so when I got into K-12, I was less interested in just getting students past the, the metrics and assessments of middle school and high school and getting into college but my mind was on once they get there what are what's what's the level of confidence the mindset about oneself um the ability to persevere when things get really hard in your engineering courses what sort of competencies do you need to have then at the age of 21 22 23 to be able to really contribute so i i i only mention that rod because i think that in that since I'm a little bit of a, a, a um, aberration from the mean, from the average math and, and physics teacher in high school. And so, as you said, I then served in a few different roles. I, would, I worked in public school systems like Boston and New York. Boston's actually smaller, it's about 50,000 kids. New York's about 1.2 million kids. Um, then I was at a charter model. So I kind of worked across charter, medium public, small public, large public. And what I kind of realized is that irrespective of district, irrespective of like any of the conditions, the teachers and the district administrators did not have the tools to deliver the outcomes that we were accountable for. My manager would come and tell me, you are responsible for X, Y, Z. And after 10 years of sitting in that role, I realized it's not because I have some inadequacy. I don't need to be trained. I need the right tools. And as I began to kind of, you talked about like, well, what was that gray zone of that transition, so to speak, of the, of the, of the mental models that I was kind of going through. And I went back to first principles. I went back to, okay, we're trying to solve the STEM learning gap crisis. What is the root cause of it? And as I began to do more uh, literature reviews, I, I learned a, a couple of really interesting things. I learned that the top indicators of success in post-secondary STEM is your ability to think spatially. And all that means is the ability, ability to rotate 3D objects in your mind and maintain perspective. And then your ability to abstract, which you know, every computer scientist knows, like abstraction, but but how do we how do we teach kids that skill methodically and at scale? And so when I started Prisms, it was not to teach kids math and science better. It was, it was to be very surgical. These are the indicators. These are, this has now been shown decade upon decade upon decade, is what differentiates those who are going on to be successful and those who are not. And I really saw my specific role as scaling those best practice teaching methods um, and really biting off a problem that was bite-size solvable and solvable using current technologies. I think sometimes in the past you had wonderful education reformers who had this ideology about what education ought to be, but at that time in history, the computing interfaces and just the, the technology that was afforded to them, you couldn't scale that kind of tech, right? So not to kind of knock on the modern computing devices it's, is here nor there, but modulating thinking through a mouse and a keyboard is simply not aligned to how little children learn. They learn through ta- they, they learn through physicality. They learn through experiences. They learn through emotional resonance with experiences they've had in their own life. It's very difficult to do that through video. And so what I was a beneficiary of, and where I'll pause, is, is I, I, I started Prisms at a time where the technology was finally ready to scale what we've all been wanting to scale for a long time which is spatial learning where kids learn in a 3D world because our world is 3D um, and learning to abstract up from their life, from their life experiences and create mathematical models of situations that they find themselves in. So that was really kind of the decision point around what, what made me go uh, we need better tools. This is a time to build them because the software and the hardware techniques and the business models have now caught up and there's a viable business to be had a VR and education company four or five years ago, had a very different DNA to what prisons has today. So, um, but jump in and tell me more about kind of the art. Oh, I mean, of-
0: I, I guess what I, I'm struck with, and I know this is audio for the podcast, and so I hope I can describe this for the for the for the listener. But there's a if someone walks into a room, right? You you examine their gait, like how do they physically walk into a room? And you use the word earlier conviction. And even when I asked you that question about the decision and the gray area, it was almost as if it was slightly uncomfortable because it wasn't even something that you thought about because you are you are rooted in your convictions. And it was never about, could you do this or do that? And that's what we hear a lot of people who go into an entrepreneurial sort of path, they have to struggle with, or they have to develop a, re- a healthy relationship with, that balance. Like you scream through this Zoom in a very positive way. If people could see even just your eyes and the way in which you look in the camera, I would imagine that when you present or if you have not yet presented in front of investors, you're going to get people's attention. There's something about being in the foxhole with you. Is that feedback that you've gotten? And can you talk about the origins? Was this you as a young girl? Was it sort of people just had to know your first name and it was like, well, that's her. <laughs> <laughs> as she smiles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, a few things come to mind. I think that there are entrepreneurs who start their journeys you know, in their early 20s, not having sat in the seat of the customer, um, and they have to go through a journey of finding product market fit. And they do that by building a product, iterating, spending time with their customer. But in my case, I've worked with hundreds of thousands of teachers. I've sat in and with thousands of classrooms, I've failed generations of kids. I did that. With my school systems and my teams. And I take that level of responsibility, because that's also the level of responsibility I take as a CEO. And so when you've kind of sat there and looked at that many kids in the eyes and watched why they failed, where they failed, how they felt when they failed, you get a tremendous instinct around product. And so if you think about what we've built, it's it's more, it's a pretty complicated apparatus. Um, and in our first year, we launched to 10,000 students across 25 school systems. Uh, in, and K-12 school sales are, are notoriously bureaucratic and potent- could be quite and long. And <laughs> long. And you know, we closed our first sales within three months. And then we doubled our, our, we went from 10,000 to 20,000 in a month and a half. And then we're launching to 100,000 students. We're going from 2010 last year, and we're going to 100 this year. So, what we're, no, what we're finding is that the work and most of my team members, we were all we're engineers by trade, meaning that we actually applied mathematical modeling in our kind of day to day. And then we all became teachers and curriculum developers and worked in it at the district level. So you kind of have both those minds, so to speak, of um, of the pedagogy and the content. Of the teaching experience and the administration, because ultimately the people we sell to are school systems. And if a superintendent cannot understand where in their strategic plan is this aligned, how do they oversee it, what's the data they use to measure impact, and what's going to drive renewals the next year, that superintendent is not going to be as amenable uh, to making quick decisions because they're going to have to watch us grow. They're going to have to build trust. So it's all to say, I think that that conviction, because we, we seem to like that word today, um, <laughs> it really comes from just having lived and breathed with teachers and kids for a very long time. And it's just sitting in the problem for as long as I did not having a solution. And then finally, having one building it. So I, w- I am eternally grateful. My first money into the company was by the National Science Foundation. It was an NSF SBIR phase one. Um, my program director, he I'll never forget the, the call. He said that you know, I don't care if you end up doing anything in the proposal you said, I'm investing in you. So take- I knew it.
0: I knew I was onto something. It was you. (laughs) No, no, it was you. So, so, okay. So how do you, so you, you kind of, you kind of evaded my question there. That's okay about what a young Anurupa was uh, growing up, but tell me a little bit about What recharges your batteries as a CEO? Because you're obviously driven, you've been in the foxhole using that again, right? You've been in the foxhole, which probably helped. You have a team of people that have, you've you've basically applied all areas of the discipline into what you're doing so that you're going in with information and power in that regard. So how do you recharge your batteries? I mean, what, what allows you to kind of let the wall down and just, I guess, breathe a little bit so that you can be the best self that you need to be for the company as you're continuing to grow?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I think that I always I always feel like, you know, I have the heart of a, a creative and an artist, but the hands of a builder. And um, that very much came from when I was young. My my mom, my mom and dad are both engineers, but my dad, my mom's a musician. She has a music school. My, my dad is a prolific writer. And I I always grew up in a home where uh, your artistic endeavors were as important as your professional ones. And so for a long time, I was a performing singer and uh, just art in general, as both as, as a mode of expressing thoughts and ideas, as well as like how I better myself or like you said, feel whole and recharge That's just been a big part of my life. So I, I sing, I used to dance a lot more. I don't dance as much, but I've been able to maintain that one hobby at a high level. And I think it's had, just massive impact on myself as a leader. And when you're when you're when I'm singing, I'm performing and ultimately as a CEO at this junction of my life or junction of the company, I am moving a little bit away from day to day operations and my ability to using the least number of words and representations really um, inspire a vision and a clear tactical path to achieving our goals i mean that's i just see a lot of synergy between what one does in a musical performance in a short 20 minutes that you have with your audience as well as that of a leader so i find myself kind of going back and forth between these different characters and dimensions of dimensions of my life and my mother had told me very very early on that when i was leaving for mit she's like a lot of folks that go into more kind of rigorous fields of study, they will, they will lose their art over time. And she's like, do not make that mistake. And I saw her as someone with a family and children and a very demanding job. She never lost it. And I think I had a mental model of what that means to maintain those other aspects of your of your life that ultimately fuel in this very intangible way your, your everyday work.
0: Sage advice from your mom. Um, uh, well said. Uh, talk with me about your relationship success. I think sometimes people, if they don't have success maybe early on in a venture, that you can almost almost romanticize the pain of it, like the victim side of it. Like, well, we're almost there. We're almost there. And you kind of think, gosh, what happens if you get there? What if you cross the line, (laughs) the finish line? How will that change you? How will that change your vision, Um, your expectation for yourself, the way you participate in the goals that you lay out for yourself? So tell me a little bit about are these moving goalposts? How do you think about it? Do you allow yourself to celebrate? Have you noticed a difference in yourself through the journey of, of building prisms?
1: That's a really loaded question. Uh, there are a few just reactions I immediately had. I think one is given the, com- again, complexity of what we're building, we sell to K-12 and we're building VR on hardware that the market does not currently have. Um... We had a lot of early failures. We 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 we. It was it was difficult to raise investment initially, and I think that the good that that I am, I'm actually really happy that that happened because it built an intestinal fortitude on our team, of like this is what we do when we fail. I do see a lot of my other kind of friends, and not to put a profile on them, that was it was easier for them to raise. It was easier for them to hit milestones and what I early milestones and what I found is they actually hadn't built the fibers and the systems of how does this, how does your organization react to failure and they were kind of getting to post series A, post series B, um without those those internal systems. I think that we're just a very maybe I, I do say this all the time, we're a team of teachers. And it's it's really hard to um experience our success as anything else but just the impact and the social value that accrues to the public. Like that's we are we are VC backed, but we uh, we we don't build for that i don't I don't build to to build a billion dollar company though you know aspirations are always there. I build because I fundamentally believe that if we're successful, kids and teachers will never ever experience their math education in the way that they have ever again and the way that they will be able to build purpose and joy and delight in the modern math classroom will fundamentally transform future generations of thought and so just when you have that kind of mission and vision, Yes, you take moments to celebrate, but like nothing is good enough because until you get to every kid in the US, we haven't done our work. And that really kind of keeps us going. And people ask, as people have often asked, so, you know, what's your exit strategy? I said, we don't have an exit strategy. We're building. We're building because we have this huge, audacious goal and there's a lot of kids. So we got to keep going until we get all of them. It's not to, you know, get a quick acquisition offer. Like that's just not what we're um, aspiring towards.
0: Let's talk about um, let's talk about gender. Let's talk about how in STEM historically we've done a terrible job, not just in the U.S. but across the world, in understanding and supporting young girls uh, in this in the STEM fields. Um, how much of this emboldens you uh, is a part of what you you think in the ability to provide opportunities to expand the playing field?
1: I think it's huge, and I, I alluded to this a bit in 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 one of the first questions is that's what I saw in college. There were about 24% of my freshman year were women, more than 50% dropped out. I stayed on for my graduate work. Very, very, very smart people left the field within four or five years. And it that, that's what really started my inquiry into what is why is this happening? And so, Um, I fundamentally believe there there are two prongs to it. One is better preparation. Um, It's actually well-established that um, women are less um, adept at spatial reasoning and some of these core predictors. So we can close the skills gap. You're going to see that multiplier effect. Um, The Soviets showed this in the 1950s. Their STEM workforce was 80-20, male-female. They were the first ones to, and what the U.S. is today, they were the first to discover that spatial reasoning was the number one indicator, and they kind of maniacally and surgically went after that cognitive process. And today, Russia is almost 50-50, their STEM workforce. So there's a lot of evidence that when you are strategic and focused, you can very quickly within a, within a couple of generations close those gaps. Um, I'll I'll kind of share one anecdote, Rob, that might um, kind of get, at, get might, might get at, get at this. Is one of our students? She came in saying, I want to be an English teacher. She hated math, kind of was a BC math student. And uh, she did a a full prisms module. In that module, you step into the role of an epidemiologist on a task force and you are creating mathematical models alongside your peers to solve this really important problem of, hey, how do we resource our hospitals effectively uh, during this pandemic? And she'd never seen what a Black female scientist looks like and sounds like and what it looks like to do that work through that lens and through that humanity. And after she did it, uh, you know, she signed up for a coding boot camp that summer. She came back and wanted to get on the medical sciences track at our high school and her entire life trajectory changed because she had a couple things. One, we built an authentic connection between what she was learning and the world that she looked at outside. And she told me, I want to be a part of solving this this issue with the pandemic. I just don't know what to do. So drawing that clear line between me as an individual and what I can do, and then seeing folks that look like myself builds confidence. It builds confidence that, oh, like those are the attributes of someone that has a similar set of life experiences as I do. And this is what they're able to achieve and accomplish and contribute. So, you know, we've just seen WestEd is our evaluation partner. They're running a ton of um, uh, third-party RCTs and feasibility studies for. Us and we're fast learning the impact of our learning environment on um, mindset and confidence, particularly of those who have not achieved, you know, experienced success in the past in our system. So stay tuned. I think that the, the immediate increase in proficiencies is, is exciting and it's, it's, it's what we need to deliver because outcomes are still tied to future opportunity for children. But, the, but I think the big, big, big hero story, which takes time to measure because it's not a quick outcome is to what extent when kids year after year after year learn math and science in this way through their life lens, through problems that they see in their world. Um, are we going to see right now 28% of high school seniors opt into STEM and as we've talked about, very few of those come from underserved communities. If prisons is successful, that should be 60% because that's reflective of our economy. Right now, more than 50% drop out and it's again, more egregious for historically underserved communities that should be less than 20%. So we're really after a kind of a more longitudinal impact um, model, but there are certain things you have to deliver for school systems in the short term to be able to see through your long-term, long-term goal.
0: Well, you've sold me. Uh, you're a rock star. I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard that. Uh, I want to make sure on that people can find find you and find prisms of reality. Where should they go to basically track the story, learn more, and get it into their schools.
1: Yeah. So uh, you can find us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, our website. Um, I'm happy to, to share those in the chat with you afterwards, Rod.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Well, Anurupa uh, Ganguly, I hope I pronounced that correctly because I'm now your newest and biggest fan. Uh, keep crushing it. Uh, I love that the spirit of you, it's not, we see so many times that there's a celebration of, I guess, a female leader, and I always have to put that, le- that label in there, right? that didn't feel like it was at all a part of our conversation in that regard. You are an incredibly strong individual that is putting action uh, to where we need it most. And I think it's uh, it's just, it's gonna be something that I'm gonna wanna follow and I hope that the audience is gonna wanna follow as well. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.